All right, we have a great episode of Side Retired, the only podcast coming at you guys today. James is taking off as the Diamondbacks are unfortunately defeated here, but it is Dylan and we're going to be joined by Tim Britton of The Athletic. So let's hit the intro music first and we'll get right into this. Hello and welcome to this edition of Side Retired, the only podcast. It's Dylan Campion alongside Tim Britton today of The Athletic. He's a Mets beat reporter, of course. James is not with us today as he is uh, reeling after a difficult loss last night. And Tim and I both know the feeling, unfortunately, as Mets fans of the 2015 World Series. So we can relate to what James is feeling right now. But thank you so much for joining us today and welcome to the show. Oh, thanks for having me. Really appreciate it. Absolutely. So... The big thing that we like to start off with the show, and really you get to take this in whatever direction you'd like to go with, but we ask our guests, who are you and what's your story in the baseball world? Okay, yeah. So uh, I'm Tim Britton. I, I've covered the Mets for The Athletic uh, over the last six seasons since the start of 2018. Uh, before that, I had spent seven years covering the Boston Red Sox for the Providence Journal newspaper in Rhode Island. Uh, and, uh, you know, I got into baseball beat writing uh Late in in college, uh, I'd attended Duke University. I'd covered the the basketball team there, and and covering basketball was was kind of what I liked most at that point in time. Uh, as as you would at Duke, uh, the baseball <laughs> team was not quite the uh, the good the good program it is now. Um, but so I I got an internship first with MinorLeagueBaseball.com going into my senior year of college. Uh, got to travel the Southeast U.S. a little bit covering the minors, uh, and then a year after that got a an internship with MajorLeagueBaseball.com covering the Mets. Uh, getting to cover their home games. Uh, and, uh, you know, at that point in time, uh, MLB.com had, I think, as, as good an internship as you could have uh, as a college student. Uh, you get to come out, like I, I went to, it was 55 or 60 Mets home games the year after I graduated college uh, and got to, you know, your your first day, you're you're in the clubhouse uh, with everyone uh, and you're writing a story. Um, and, you know, there, there was no, there were no baby steps. Uh, and I really appreciated that, uh, even though I could have probably used some baby steps at that point. <laughs> Um, so I did that in, that was 2009, uh, 2010, I, I had the same internship covering the, the New York Yankees, uh, and then, uh, was, was really fortunate to get the job with the Projo, uh, starting in the 2011 season in Boston. Uh, you know, it was, uh, I, I had applied to over a hundred jobs over the previous few months, uh, many of which I did not really want. Uh, and, uh, I saw the Projo one and that was, that was definitely number one on the list and happened to be the one, uh, that was offered to me. So that was, that felt really good. Um, and then, uh, to be able to spend, uh, seven years there kind of learning, uh, from a, a lot of different writers, uh, I got to work with a guy named Brian McPherson, who was, uh, incredibly helpful, uh, to, to kind of writer that I, I became and, and, uh, evolved into over time, uh, writing for a newspaper was difficult. Uh, I was writing a lot more words, a lot quicker, <laughs> a lot more quickly than I was used to. Uh, and then uh, after seven years there, when the Athletics started hiring uh, beat writers for for a bunch of different major league teams, uh, I was interested in in moving back closer to where I grew up in New Jersey. Uh, they had the, the Mets job open, and and that seemed like a really cool opportunity to uh, write about baseball, maybe a little bit of a different way, uh, but still have that regular beat beat aspect to it. And and that's what I've enjoyed so much about being back here. I love it. And then you did just mention two key cities that you've worked in is New York and Boston, and those are two of the things that. Everyone talks about the New York media and the Boston fans are crazy. So what is that experience like for you so far working in those two massive markets? 
Well, one of the, the great things about it uh, is that like the teams are always relevant. You know, I, I think the, the hardest thing in baseball to cover is probably a bad team in the month of August. Um, and I've, I've, I've had to do that, you know, I had to do that a little bit this year with the Mets. Uh, and, and, you know, when I covered the Red Sox, they, they were, they had some dizzying seasons back and forth. You know, they, I covered them for seven years. They finished first three of them and they finished last three of them. And the only one they finished in the middle, they had a September collapse that was legendary uh, and which I had experience from as a Mets fan. Uh, and so, uh, you know, th- that's the real bonus of being in a market like like New York or Boston is, you know, if the team is is 60 and 90 late in the season, people really care. Uh, you're, you're not going to it's not going to be like those years uh, in Houston or in in Baltimore or now you see, you know, you go to a you know a Tampa Bay, you go to a, a playoff game that it, that has half the half the seats filled. Uh, you know, people really care about these teams. Um, and I, I probably going into it didn't think that the media itself was as big a deal you know you'd hear about all oh, the, the big bad new york media or the tough boston media like players can't play in those markets the the first team i covered on, on a beat was the 2011 red sox they had added adrian gonzalez and carl crawford guys who were very used to playing in smaller markets uh and you could see that you know that that did have an impact on them in a way that i did not expect uh and so i, I think it is it is actually a skill to be able to play in that kind of market. I think it's it's learned and it's something that uh, guys who come up uh, through the farm systems in, in New York, in Boston, in Philly, uh, in Chicago, maybe L.A., uh, get used to it a little bit more than than guys who are you know used to, to playing in, in Tampa and San Diego, maybe. Absolutely. And then what is sort of like, and I know it's going to be a difficult question, but a day in the life, because I know obviously you're at the ballpark 24 seven or it seems like it long days and long hours and road trips and everything like that. So I guess we can do two part of a, what's it been like for the last couple of months working in season. And then now that we're in the off season, what is daily life? Cause obviously you're not at the ballpark 24 seven anymore. Yeah. In, in season, I actually, one of the maybe counterintuitive aspects of it is that in season, you're not as worried when you're not at the ballpark that something is going to happen at any second, <laughs> you know, like, like we're on a, on a zoom in early November and like, I have my phone next to me. And like there's a chance something crazy happens uh, in the next 30 minutes. Um, you don't feel that way at uh, in the morning on a Wednesday in, in June. Um, you know, the trade deadline is obviously the, the difference there, but uh, you know, it's, it's waking up and kind of, getting a sense of of what other people on your beat have written, if there's anything you've missed that other people have, have done, or if you weren't at the game the night before, kind of reading everything and getting uh, a sense of, of what happened. You know, it's it, my off days are kind of like school absent, absent <laughs> days. Like you're still responsible for the material, even though you weren't there. Um, and so it, it's catching up on that stuff. Uh, you know, we, we have to be at the ballpark by about 3 p.m. Uh, in the afternoon. Uh, the clubhouse is open. Uh, for the Mets, it's usually, for, for their home games, it's usually about 3.10 to 4 o'clock. Uh, every team has to have it open 50 minutes uh, before batting practice. Uh, and so you're there, you're in the, the open clubhouse. That's where you get your interviews done with different players. Covering baseball is uh, one of the best parts of it is that that access. Uh, it's different than other sports. I've, I've done, I've dabbled in, in covering the NBA and the NFL. Uh, and the NBA, I think it's it's 25 or 30 minutes before a game. You do a morning shoot around, uh, which is uh, not easy to, to go to, the, to, to, go to the, the arena, come back and, and then go, go back again. Uh, and in the NFL, uh, there's no pregame access on, on Sundays. Uh, and during the week, you're kind of beholden to who's going to be in the locker room at any moment. Uh, so it's a little tougher that way. So I, I love having that that daily access before a game uh, every day, you know, to go over and talk to uh, Max Scherzer about something or Pete Alonzo or Jeff McNeil. 
Um, and, you know, as seasons go on, the, their availability does change. Guys in slumps are generally less available. You understand that. Yeah. Uh, and winning streaks generally bring more people <laughs> into the clubhouse than losing streaks. Um, so you use that time. And then at, at four o'clock, we talk to the manager uh, in a, a press conference setting. It's it's always a, li- it's a little disappointing. Like That's one of the, the cons of covering a big market team is uh, those pregame press conferences are on TV every day. And so there's a lot more formality to them than there used to be. Um, mm-hmm. you know, that's, that's been the case my entire career, but there are, there are writers I know who, you know, remember covering it where you're just, you're sitting in the manager's office, just leaning back on a chair and, <laughs> and shooting the breeze. Uh, we don't get that quite the same extent these days. Uh, and then you're usually outside during BP cause you can pick off more players that way. Just make sure nothing crazy happens. The general manager isn't sitting in the dugout waiting for people to talk to him or anything like that. Uh, and then you go upstairs and you start writing, uh, you know, fortunately with the athletic and, and online deadlines, uh, I do not have to have everything done uh, <laughs> at a specific time early in the day when I when I wrote for the Providence Journal. Uh, I used to have a I would have a notebook that was due about 7 p.m. Eastern time, so right before first pitch. Uh, then I would have another story, uh, a pregame sidebar that was due by about 8 p.m. Uh, and then the game story was due, you know, two minutes after the game ended. Uh, and so a lot of times you're writing through the first three innings. Uh, and then you're catching up on what happened in those first three innings, getting a sense for the game. And and I would usually start writing a game story by about the top of the seventh. Uh, actually, with with uh, the way the, the pitch clock works now, I'd probably have to start that a little earlier because uh, depending on how quickly those last three innings could go. Uh, you know, now with the athletic, uh, I, I still I, I generally start writing. If I'm writing off the game, I generally start around that seventh inning, uh, getting a sense of what I want to write. But there is a little bit more leeway where if the story changes post game or if, if you don't have a good idea going into the post game. Uh, you can kind of change it. You have more time after to change it the next day. Uh, so like that, that's that, that's the general day to day in the in season, the off season. Uh, it's it's a lot of waiting around. You're, you know, you're working from home most of the time, as as you can see, uh, waiting around, seeing if anything happens, uh, having ideas that are you know that that fit different parts of the off season. So you know, right now we're talking about previewing free agency uh and and that kind of thing uh next week uh they have the general managers meetings in scottsdale arizona so i'll be out there uh for a few days uh the winter meetings are next month in nashville uh so that will be uh uh, it's always the busiest week of the year that (laughs) the trade deadline uh so you know that'll be a lot of early mornings and and late nights uh you never know when news can break there are times where you wake up at 8 30 in the morning and and the Mets have signed carlos correa (laughs) uh and there's there's times i remember being on the the Red Sox beat when when John Lester signed with the Cubs. I think it was at you know one a.m. Eastern time. Uh, so you never know when when something might happen, and it's it's a lot more stressful that way in the off season than I think a lot of people realize. Absolutely, I think I remember it was like two in the morning. All of a sudden, my dad woke me up early when he got up for work at six a.m. He's like, "We signed Correa last night." <laughs> I was like, "I went to bed at one. There's no shot." And then all of a sudden, it's that weird. Everyone's waking up and finding out in some sort of way, but. I yeah, like I, I, yeah. I found out about Carlos Correa signing with the Mets from uh, a friend that I have from grade school who lives on the east coast of Africa. Uh, he <laughs> said, sent me a text like, "Man, what's this like covering this Correa stuff?" And I was like, uh, "I'm not really covering." Like, oh, okay, yeah, yeah. Um, I'm on it now. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, that ties back to the statement you made that there's never really a dull moment with the Mets, whether it's good or for worse. It seems like there's always something with the team. But what was that like? Obviously, for this previous season coming into it the high expectations the Verlander the Scherzer Alonzo's back before Diaz was hurt you're re-signing the best closer in baseball and then obviously unfortunately you don't want to relive it but what happened over the last six months of 
what was that whole energy and vibe like at the beginning of the year and by September when it was basically a funeral march to the end? It's really amazing how, you know, you go into a baseball season and I feel like everyone who was looking at the National League this past season in, in spring training would say, man, it, it's tough not to pick the same six playoff teams we saw last year. It was tough not to think, you know, Atlanta, St. Louis, L.A. or San Diego would win, win, win their divisions at the Mets, the Phillies, uh, the Padres or Dodgers. Like the, Those would be your six. Um, and I remember thinking, like, you know, I know it doesn't happen that way, but I don't <laughs> know the teams that are, are stepping in. You know, maybe the Giants would be good. Um, and then, you know, the, the first regular season games I covered, I wasn't on the first trip to Miami, uh, but I was in Milwaukee where they really got blitzed by the Brewers over three games. And I remember thinking like, you know, I still think the Mets are going to be good, but you can see the ways they wouldn't be. You can see how this can go south. Uh, and then they, they played, you know, when they were out on the West Coast uh, shortly after that, it was like, oh, well, here's you can see how everything can go well for them. This is very much like 2022 at this point in time. Uh, and then I think, you know, we'll, my my partner on the beat, Will Salmon, and I wrote a, a long story about uh, how the season kind of went awry. And that series in Detroit in early May was a was one that a lot of players pointed to. Uh, and that was the first time you're like, man, that's, that's a series you're supposed to win, maybe even sweep and, <laughs> and certainly not get swept in. And that was when, you know, they, they were getting Verlander back. Scherzer started in that series and they, they still got swept by a team that wasn't playing well. Uh, and that was at a point where they were losing a lot of series to teams they should beat. And at that point in time, I remember thinking that, you know, they, they probably have cost themselves a chance to win the division at that point. And it's making the wild card a little bit harder because already you were seeing teams like Miami and Arizona off to much better starts than I would have anticipated. Uh, and so, but, but still, you know, I've, I've covered teams where they're 10 games under 500 in May and, and you still know they're, they're good down the line. Mm -hmm. And it really wasn't uh -huh. until uh, probably that San Diego series right before the all-star break where uh, I think they won the first game of that series, but then lost the last two. And that kind of, hurt the momentum they had otherwise carried in off of a sweep of the Diamondbacks. Uh, and that that made me think, like, you know what, I I just don't know that it's going to happen because it has to happen really fast before the trade deadline. And and uh, it doesn't doesn't look like it's set up for that. And then obviously when when the trades happen, you know that it's uh, it's going the other way the rest of the way. Absolutely. And then what was that June like or the July? And obviously you were around the team that all of a sudden it was David Robertson's not pitching the ninth inning. Hey, there was a rain delay. Why is he not pitching? And then everyone gets in the clubhouse. Well, he's packing for Miami. And then seemed like 48 hours later Scherzer was in Steve's office and they're talking about the future and then he's on and then Justin Verlander has gone so that's probably a pretty hectic week I know there's the 2015 five days in flushing <laughs> that's a hectic period as well but this is almost the anti that of what happened in those five days yeah it's the real inverse of it right <laughs> um it uh you know the, the the Robertson one it was it was a little bit of a surprise that it happened as early as it did but but certainly by that point it wasn't a surprise that he was traded uh I think that that, that didn't take anyone really off guard. Uh, it, it did the night, I think it was the night after that when, when Scherzer I know, had his start and said afterward, like, I need to talk to some people. Because uh, it was kind of like, you know, in the moment you're thinking, well, Robertson got traded. That that shouldn't change too much of your perspective. Uh, but what we learned later, what Max told us later was, you know, he's getting texts from everyone saying, like, we, I heard we agreed to a trade for you or you made your no trade clause. <laughs> Uh, and, and I talked to him when he came back with Texas and he was like, yeah, I, I couldn't say at the time they're trading me to eight different places, basically. <laughs> like, um, and so that was when, when, you know, you kind of put two and two together that, that larger stuff was happening than maybe we expected going into that week. Uh, and, and once Scherzer was traded, it, it felt, uh, 
like a, a fait accompli that, that Verlander would go to in the next couple of days. I think he knew it too. And the fans knew it the way they they celebrated his, his last start in, at City Field that Sunday. Uh, so yeah, that I mean, that he was a Tuesday in Kansas City, August 1st, the trade deadline. Uh, you know, the, the deadline was at uh, what five Eastern or, or six Eastern, you know, we're in the clubhouse right before uh, the deadline's about to hit. And it, it, you know, felt like guys being waiting to be called into the principal's office, basically, and, and told where they're going. There's there was one player who was walking around who, who didn't get changed into his his you know uniform or his, his BP clothes because he knew he, he was just waiting for the flight. Like yeah. it's like just tell me where I'm flying. Um, so it's always that's uh, you know I've, I've covered some other teams that have have done trade deadline sell-offs. The, the 2014 Red Sox did a big one. Uh, which was mostly overnight. Again, I was waking up to finding out that John Lester was an Oakland A. Um, but uh, this was, a, you know, just the the progression from from one day to the next and hearing, you know, Billy Epler and Steve Cohen talk about taking a step back in 2024. Uh, that that was not what I expected going into that week. Yeah, and then that's one of those phrases that everyone's tossed around of what is 2024 going to be? Obviously, there's a likely $500 million man sitting out there that it seems like people are still saying, hey, there's a shot he comes to Queens after all this. But what do you think it's been like? And obviously, I assume you were at City for the new David Stern's press conference, and it seems like excitement is building once again. But there's a, I describe it at least as a match fan, it's like a cautious optimism, at least in my head, of like, all right, maybe we're not going to be the 100 win team that we were two years ago, but it can't be as bad as it was last year again. Well, I, I think the, the really interesting dynamic is. Like you, you know, you hire Stearns, uh, and and he comes in, and and one of the the really interesting things he said in that intro press conference uh, was about how you know you look at what happened to the Mets, what happened to the Mets in twenty twenty three. He said isn't unique. It's what happens when you build a team through free agency with older players, and some of them get hurt, and some of them underperform, uh, and the, the Mets did not have the sufficient depth behind those guys to recover. Uh, you know, guys like David Peterson, and Tyler McGill didn't have the seasons they expected. Uh, and if you, you take all of that and you say, okay, what in a vacuum, what would be this guy's offseason blueprint? It's probably adding depth. It's probably not participating at the top end of the free agent market. It's not trading prospects for Juan Soto. Uh, you know, it's 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 more of a, a an idea of, okay, 2024, we're going to try to win 85 games. We'll see if it breaks right. We can win 90, make the playoffs. Um, but, you know, 2025 and 2026 are going to be the seasons we really aim for. But that's complicated, of course, by you've got this ridiculous player on the free agent market uh, and not a lot of teams have the the capacity financially to sign him. Uh, a guy who not only brings you on-field value, uh, but but off-field value to, you know, Steve Cohen's business with, with the Mets and his day job with, with 0.72, you know, uh, building that, that, that brand uh, in Asia is something that he's been uh, trying to do for a little bit of time. Uh, and then, the, you know, the second, maybe the second best free agent is a starting pitcher who's only 25 in Yoshinobu Yamamoto, uh, who fits, again, the same vibe as Otani a bit, uh, that, you know, it's not every offseason you have a chance to sign a 25-year-old starting pitcher. Uh, it's very few offseasons you have that chance. And so how does how do those kind of two unique presences change what Stearns would do otherwise? You know, if, if it's if it's last year's offseason... I don't think they're they're signing the top two guys. I don't think they're trying very hard to sign the top two guys. It's this year's free agency, though, and, and those two guys uh, have kind of special qualities that fit this roster in particular. You know, the Mets could really use a left-handed middle-of-the-order bat who DHs. Uh, they could really use a young, good starting pitcher, uh, and those are the two best guys, so it, it lines up that way. Uh, and I'm really interested in seeing just how aggressive they are with both of those uh, those players. Absolutely. It seems like when you mentioned the word depth and not to call Jose Quintana depth, but that almost worked out like as the best signing this offseason that he's now going to be penciled in as 
I think right now he's technically the two. I assume by the end of this offseason, he's probably not going to be the two in the rotation. But just adding those supplementary pieces, a Tommy Pham-like player, a Mark Canna-like player, that's going to help this team fulfill the 85-win, 87-win type team. Yeah, I mean, that, like, again, if, if Otani and Yamamoto aren't out there, yeah. that, that's that's the blueprint I'm laying down for David Stearns. It's it's two more Jose Quintana signings, you know, of <laughs> there's, there's there's that those kinds of pitchers are available in a surplus this offseason. You know, the the Kyle Gibsons, the Kenta Maeda's, the, the Lance Lynn's, like guys <laughs> who can eat innings for you, can be reasonable, aren't going to be opening day starters for anyone. Uh, that kind of, of presence uh, that that would have been what I would have expected. It's just a matter of, of you know, how aggressive are they going to be on the, the top line? And, and, you know, how do they view their needs positionally? I, I think we all know they need starting pitching, uh, but but what do they think about Brett Beatty as a third baseman? Where does Ronnie Mauricio fit in? Is Mark Vientos a guy you can hand DH to? Is Starling Marte a guy you're comfortable being an everyday player for you? Or, or do you need to make more changes to the offense uh, than some people might think? Absolutely. And then the other thing that you mentioned earlier on that your phone is right next to you. And I assume that's with all the reports of managerial changes and <laughs> interviews and everything that's going on. But because um, I know you mentioned that I think you said 2018 was your first year on the Mets beat. And there's obviously been three, technically four managers in that time period. What is that like? And obviously, now that they're searching for a new manager, you're going to have your fourth manager in there that you're going to have to get to know and become familiar with. It's it's funny. I was joking with a couple of my my friends who still cover the Red Sox, and they were complaining about how they have to, you know, this is the the, the fourth GM they've hired in the last thirteen years. It's it's crazy amount of turnover, and I was like, oh, that's that's cute. <laughs> Uh, you know, the Mets are on their eighth different head of baseball operations in the last six years. Uh, set, I guess seven seasons with Stern starting next year. Uh, this will be their fifth manager in that stretch. Uh, the, you know, the last guys to last more than two years in either of those roles are, are Sandy Alderson and Terry Collins. So it's, it's been a lot of turnover. Uh, it makes it uh, a bit frustrating sometimes as a beat writer that, you know, you, you work to build a relationship with uh, a guy in either of those jobs and then they're gone <laughs> within, within a season or two. Uh, but it also provides excitement and chance to to get to know someone else and see how how something else is, how something is done differently. Uh, so you know it's it'll be an interesting you know obviously everyone knows Craig Council as kind of the the front running candidate uh, and and whether or not he wants to be in New York wants to take on that challenge uh, is kind of the big question. I think if if he wants the job, I think it's his. Uh, but I don't know necessarily whether he wants it or not. Uh, and that's a, an interesting dynamic in play. Absolutely. And I think that's the same phrase I used earlier. The cautiously optimistic is how I describe the is Craig Council coming. I think the other names was like Carlos Mendoza is being talked about and Marcate is being talked about. I know co-host James and I always banter back and forth. We love AJ Hinch, but I don't know how realistic that actually is. And same with James's favorite name, if I remember this correctly. I think it was Mark DeRosa because he became infatuated oh, yeah. with the USA World Baseball Classic. I'm like, I don't know. World Baseball Classic was not a fun experience for Mets fans <laughs> last year, so I don't know yeah. if I like to go back there. But well, I've, I've you know I've, I've talked to to some Will, Will Salmon on, on the beat, and I, you know I've wondered you know Stearns has not hired a manager before. He had mm-hmm. counsel the entire time in Milwaukee, and and we talked a little bit about Hinch. I, I you know this is not based on reporting yeah. I've done, but, but uh, you know no, no conversations with Stearns <laughs> himself. Uh, but I would think that like you know finding the next AJ Hinch, the guy who who has kind of AJ Hinch's resume before he got to Houston. So a guy who's got that kind of varied experience in as, as a manager and a stint that did not work out for AJ in Arizona uh, and, and some front office experience. I think that's why like someone like Andy Green uh, interviewing, according to the New York post, uh, like that's, that's a guy who kind of fits that mold a little bit, you know, uh, a guy who, who whose first tenure with, with San Diego didn't go great. 
uh, but but who has varied experience, has his very brief playing tenure with the Mets at, at some point, uh, I think in 2009. Uh, but, you know, I, I think if if Council isn't the guy, that would be more of the resume that I would expect them to be looking for uh, here with, with someone else. Absolutely. And then is it sort of the, I know there was whole like, oh, Craig Council's contract isn't expiring, so I think it was November 1st, but then he got the special permission. Is it, I guess maybe if you don't know about this search, but just in general, do teams usually have like they, all right, this is our one guy. And then if that doesn't work, then we'll start exploring our other options. Or is it the things are working at the same time or whatever happens, happens type of deal? It, it, different searches have gone differently. You know, when I, I covered the Red Sox, uh, they, they fired, uh, they let Terry Francona go after 2011. Uh, and they brought in five, they had five finalist candidates uh, and they hired a guy who was not among the finalists. They went out, they, they decided they didn't like any of the finalists and they went out and hired Bobby Valentine. And a year later, they were looking for another manager. Uh, they, they fired Valentine. And that year it was very clear. They wanted John Farrell, who was currently managing the Blue Jays. Uh, so they, they went out, you know, I don't even know if there was a second candidate at any point. I just remember we all were like, yeah, it's going to be Farrell. And then it, it was, they, they actually had to trade for him. Uh, I don't know if that would be the case. It, it certainly would not be the case with Council. I don't know if that would be the case with Katze uh, in any way. Um, you know, this one is more like that that second one that the Red Sox had. It's looking more at a specific person who is is pretty clearly the front runner. Uh, and if he wants the job, it's his. Uh, but, you know, at the same time, uh, I, th- I think the Mets have to do the other parts of it along t- alongside. You don't want to end up in a situation like the, the Red Sox were in, in late 2011 where, you get you, you go through a whole process. You're like, I, I don't like any of these guys. Uh, we got to start over. We got to start fresh. And you know that that team didn't name a Valentine its manager until we were into December, and that kind of threw off the coaching staff all year. It it, it wasn't a good good dynamic, uh, and I think the Mets want to avoid that. Absolutely, and I think you also mentioned the general manager meetings are happening in about a week, and then we have the baseball winter meetings taking place a month from now. Do you think a general manager needs to be in place relatively soon, or can technically David Stearns, he's a president of baseball operations, he can still go and quote unquote represent the Mets? Yeah, I, I think Stearns should have no problem doing that. Uh, you know, it, it, we all know this is title inflation that that <laughs> Stearns is is doing the job that a, a quote unquote GM was doing 15 years ago, uh, and that most of the guys who have the GM title underneath the president of baseball ops are doing the jobs that assistant GMs used to do. Uh, so I, I don't think there's a real pressing need for a, a general manager. I think if there is the right person who comes along and who is available, that they'll explore that. But it, it wouldn't surprise me if uh, the Mets did not name a, an official general manager uh, at all this offseason into next season, you know, next on, like it, it's, it's when I covered, when I covered Boston, uh, Dave Dombrowski had Mike Hazen as his GM at first. And when Hazen left to take over the Diamondbacks, uh, he was not replaced. Uh, they, they operated without a, a formal GM for a while. Uh, and, and that was no problem. So I, I think we'll, uh, you know, Stearns has said they want someone in that role. And I think it's a way to bring talent to your organization and to your front office. Uh, but I don't think that's as urgent as some of their other needs. Absolutely. And I'm fascinated by this whole like phantom IL, obviously, I don't know how much you're allowed to talk about that or not, but I know there's that clip of AJ Przinsky going around where he's like, yeah, they told me you're going to get injured and pick your injury. And so it seems like phantom IL is definitely something that's been around for a while, but obviously it seems like the Mets are one of the first teams that's going to get penalized in some fashion because of it. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely something that we as beat writers talk about. Like, you know, <laughs> when a, a Phantom I.L. is coming, I remember covering uh, a guy and we, we came out of the manager's office and he'd said, oh, yeah, he's going on the I.L. with a, a right calf injury. And the, the player looked at the PR director and the PR director kind of whispered, right calf, you know, like that's that's <laughs> what's hurt. Um, so, you know, I, I think it's it's a 
something we all know about in the, in the sport. Uh, so that's why I'm, I'm interested in this investigation to see like what else it's trying to get at and un uncover. Uh, you know, heard some people talk about whether, whether the Mets took it to a different level over the last season plus uh, or whether uh, it's more of a vindictive thing going on. Um, but we'll see uh, how that, that investigation plays out. Uh, all sides have been uh, very quiet on that front <laughs> the last couple of weeks. Uh, it's just a, a lot of speculation around it at this point. Uh, and, and interested in seeing exactly how it plays out and, and what's alleged here. Absolutely. And then before we get into, I have three fun questions to throw at you, but before I say those Mets fans would get upset with me if I didn't mention our boy, Pete Alonzo is definitely in a interesting off season state fingers crossed. He's playing with the Mets on opening day, or is there a legit chance? I know a couple of Cubs fans, friends that keep throwing screenshots at me with a lot of Photoshop Pete Alonzo Cubs jerseys. So you know anything there, or am I going to unfortunately have to get rid of my Pete jersey like mm -hmm. I did a DeGrom one a year ago? My, my expectation is that Alonzo is the Mets' first baseman on opening day, the same way Stern said uh, at his introductory press conference. He also did not sound like a guy who was in a rush to extend Pete Alonzo at that point. <laughs> uh, and I think, you know, the, the Mets, it, look, if, if this were a smaller market franchise, you would say that this is the offseason. You 100% you have to make your decision. You are extending him or you are trading him. When you're in New York and you have Steve Cohen's wallet, you don't have to make that decision. We saw just last offseason, Edwin Diaz hit free agency. The Mets brought him back. Brandon Nimmo hit free agency. The Mets brought him back. They they have the freedom and financial wherewithal to tell Pete Alonso, you go out, find the best deal you can, come back to us, and we'll top it. Yeah. Um, you know, it's it's not 100% that Alonso will say, sure, I'll do that. He might just take the other deal. <laughs> um, you know, he might feel disrespected in that way. Um, but I, I think that possibility exists. The Mets do not have the same urgency this offseason as a lot of other franchises would in this same spot. Uh, but that said, you know, Scott Boris has already started talking a little bit about uh, how much value Alonso has, uh, more so than some of the other first baseman free agent contracts that have been handed out of late, uh, you know, how this offseason progresses with different different signings could set different uh, precedents for Pete uh, for next year. So I I think my, my expectation is still that that he is the, the best first baseman at the start of the season and throughout next season. Uh, but I do think, you know, Stearns should have his ear out there if, if there is a team willing to say, hey, we'll trade you uh, a whole bunch of guys for one year of Pete Alonso, that uh, maybe that is the, the best path for the team like it so I can keep that jersey safe. I know my my history of jerseys has not been great. Friends of the podcast know that the last three I had was Harvey, Cano, and DeGrom. And well, each one of those three has not ended for a different reason in a bad way. But uh, we do have three fun rapid fire questions to throw at you if you're game for them to retire the side on. Sure. The yeah. So obviously a big thing at City Field and around baseball is a walk-up song. So if you were playing at City Field, what would be blaring on the sirens and coming up as you were walking up to the plate? Ooh, you know, I I, I feel bad because I feel like Bryson Stotts in Philly is <laughs> is the best one going right now uh, in, in the sport. Uh, but I, you know, I like uh, the song "Bad Company" by Bad Company that that has a nice little piano intro that that busts into to harder stuff, and I think that that would work for me pretty well. I love it. It's a good one. The second one we have for you, and you can take it in whichever direction you want to take it in, but we asked our guests for a nice, bold prediction for the offseason. It could be a signing, a trade, Hall of Fame for you, or anything just in between, something bold that might happen, Mets, MLB, or anywhere in between. Um, I hadn't thought that through yet. <laughs> um, I would say that, uh, you know, I, I projected uh, Yamamoto to get about $203 million. 
uh, over seven years, I would say uh, it would not surprise me if he got like $250 million plus. Um, because, I like that. <laughs> um, you know, like like the, the interesting thing is Otani is clearly the number one free agent, um, but there's only so, you know, the, the financial market he's going to play in is so limited that there's only a couple teams that can really afford to give him that. The market for Yamamoto is going to be so much larger because it's it's a lower price, even though we're still talking about a quarter million dollars, <laughs> quarter billion dollars here. Uh, but also because of his age, uh, there's a lot of, te- you know, that's the kind of free agent pitcher that teams that would otherwise stay away from that market that are more cautious in that market can consider. You can imagine, hey, the Orioles can say, like, this is a guy who can grow with our our team or the, or the Mets can say, even if we're not trying to be our best team in 2024, he fits. Uh, he fits for a lot of teams. There are some big market teams in, in Boston and San Francisco and St. Louis and the Bronx and Queens <laughs> who are coming off seasons that uh, they, they kind of want to make a splash this offseason. So he might be the, the main benefactor of that. Absolutely. And I hate to break up the rapid fire, but a good question I had based off that. Do you think Otani and Yamamoto want us to wait for the other to sign at first? Or is it they're basically separate parallel tracks that there's a lot of teams that will be interested in both? I, th- I think probably. Uh, I, I don't know if there's that much crossover. I mean, I, I think the you know if you're, if you're talking about teams that, that would be in on Otani, you're probably talking about the, the Mets, the Dodgers, uh, maybe the Giants, the Mariners, the Yankees, maybe to an extent. Um and those teams would all have interest in Yamamoto. Uh, I I don't know if you know Yamamoto waits for Otani to sign and then says, "Hey, like you finished second there. This is you now. You definitely have have desperation for me. Maybe that is a good idea on his part. I hadn't thought about it that way. Uh, but but yeah, that that could be something that plays into it a little bit. Absolutely. And then the third question we have for you, sort of in appreciation for you hopping on the podcast with us today, we let our guests determine the future of the show, and if you'd like to nominate. <laughs> someone from your baseball journey whether it's in boston or new york or anywhere in between that you say hey he'd be a nice person to interview next on the show um let me think that through um you know one of the guys who had a really beneficial relationship on my, on my career uh, a big impact was alex spear who writes for the boston globe and, and covers the red sox and, and does a really good job on that and is uh, endlessly curious uh and so i think he would be uh, a good guest for you guys and Absolutely. also has a has a uh a Northern Virginia connection. So uh, fit geographically as well. I love it. Absolutely. Well, this has been a blast getting to talk to you here in lots of Mets. Fingers crossed on a better 2024 season than this past year, but really appreciate all the time, all the insight and all the great stories and your baseball insight. Oh, thanks for having me on. I really, really enjoyed it. Absolutely. This has been a blast. We'll be back next week. Hopefully James is no longer crying in his <laughs> pillows about the Diamondbacks, but for Dylan Campione and Tim Britton until the next time the side is retired.